The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into part two of this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. And joining me for today's edition, we have our roundtable regulars. Uh, On the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. And joining us this week, author of American Schism, Seth David Radwell is joining the roundtable again. It's good to have him back. Welcome back, Seth, and uh, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. It's great to be with you guys. I love hearing about all the things that I don't know about local politics in your area. (laughs) Join the real world. (laughs) Yes. Well, I know Mark Everson, who lives in Mississippi, gets a big kick out of Flint politics because we've had some some real strange ones happen. Now, I did mention uh, when we first began the last hour, uh, Kelly Rossman McKinney, a trailblazer in Michigan's public relations uh, industry. She died Tuesday after a battle with cancer at age 67. Rossman McKinney, a Democrat, joined forces with Republican John Truscott in 2011 to form Lansing-based Truscott Rossman, one of Michigan's most successful public relations firms. She retired from the company in 2018 and after an unsuccessful run for the state Senate, served until her death as communications director for Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, Rossman McKinney began her career as a legislative secretary in 1979 and worked in both the Michigan House and Senate before joining the administration of former Governor James Blanchard to serve as the communications director for the newly created Michigan Youth Corps. Blanchard promoted her to uh, run the program, and she went on to lead Blanchard's Office of Michigan Products, tasked with showcasing Michigan-made goods to the world. Um, any thoughts or comments about uh, about Kelly? Certainly been a major voice out of Lansing for many, many years, with that, in, in, in a number of positions. Well, We're glad was, that she had 
served in that capacity because I think that she helped to improve communication and free thought and and open up discussion in many areas that were closed. Well, and I think the Truscott Rossman uh, yeah. agency did a lot um, in terms of trying to make conversation across the aisle a little bit more civilized. Yeah. It certainly was a bad week for uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel here in Michigan. I, you know, it, it's, it's bad enough that she picked this particular moment in time to have a faux pas and have a little too much to drink at the big game. But, right. um, but you know, in the same week, she really kind of lost her voice. Yeah. Well, I think that too would pass with all of the, with all of the bad, bad blood that's going on in America. Well, I, I think she has uh, been an example um, throughout the state and throughout the years of, you know, how to how to do it right, how to be professional, and and. Uh, I, I think she will be missed. Even if people don't know her name, her presence will be missed. Anyway, moving and on. And Tim Skubik himself has done a lot to open up discussion between the two sides, uh, Democrats hey, and Republicans. He, he does a good job of balance. Did I hear that he had announced his retirement? Oh, I hadn't heard that. No, I, I watched the program regularly, but I hadn't heard that. But I knew that there were some questions uh revolving around that, but I have heard nothing definitive. I, I thought he had, had announced that, you know, after, I don't know if it's after this season, I don't even know how the seasons run for the that program and, and the programming at WKAR, but um, I, I just, I, I thought it was quite a while ago that I heard something about mm. it, and then I haven't heard anything since, and I thought maybe he was pulling one of these Johnny Carson things where, <laughs> you know, he's, he's retiring, but it's going to take years for it to actually happen. <laughs> he's um, falling back to earth like a, a, a falling star that revolves around it. Uh, well, debris that revolves around the earth. President Joe Biden is visiting Detroit today, just two days after he signed the $1.2 trillion Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, according to the White House. The visit to the General Motors uh, Company's Factory Zero electric vehicle assembly plant will be Biden's first visit since uh, an October 5th visit to Howell, where he touted infrastructure spending. The Democratic president is expected to revisit the topic during today's stop in Detroit after the scheduled uh, Monday bill signing. If the bill is already passed and signed, why is the president still stumping for it? Uh, I'm thinking because of, because some of those dramatically low ratings he's had recently, he's really got to rebuild those before next year rolls around. And I suspect that's an attempt to 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 to, to raise those surprisingly low ratings he's had within the last couple of weeks. Well, I, and yeah, and I I think that he has to uh, try to hope that he can pull entities to, together to work better to improve. Uh, employment, uh, reduce inflation and stuff like that. He needs to stump for that if he wants to bring this country back to 
like the par. Yeah. And, and I think there are there's some parts of that bill that, are, that really are, are not that well known and are really could be very very popular. But uh, as I say, for for that bill especially, it was just kind of vague of exactly what it was all about to the, in the eyes of an awful lot of yeah. the American public. So this may be a way of focusing and and building upon the victory he had in Washington. It's public relations. relations. One of the questions I wanted to ask you guys is that this I've been I've been talking a lot about this on on another podcast. It, you know, when you look at the substance of the bill, and given uh, what it's trying to uh, tackle, this would be a, the perfect example of what in, in previous decades might have been a bipartisan supportive issue. And it certainly, uh, in many ways, seemed like it may have gotten that way when the Senate initially passed it and got behind it. So is this, is this indica- indicative of the fact that there are no issues now that we can uh, discuss in the public arena, at least at the federal level, that aren't going to take a bitterly partisan approach, even at the expense of what might be good economic programs. Uh, good point. Yeah. That is a good point, Seth, and it makes you wonder, you know, when it comes time to build a bridge, do you have Republicans standing on one side of the river and Democrats standing on the other side of the river and both are arguing that it should start here? <laughs> yeah. The research that that I go through in the book shows that 77% of Americans are part of what I call the exhausted majority, meaning that they believe we've got to compromise and solve problems. So if if 77% of Americans are are in this camp of, you know, not being uh, heard by the extremes left or right and believe in compromise and solution setting, you would think that that... Biden would have more support for this overall program. But as you guys point out, he's got a stump for it. He's got to remind people what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's remarkable here in Michigan, I and mean, in really other states too, that those, the handful of Republicans who voted for this are getting beat up by their own party. Fred Upton, who's a Republican member of Congress here in this state. Well, yeah, he's had been a, threats. Had a death threat tossed out against him because of it. Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's not a trend, guys. Go ahead, Seth. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, you know, when I see the notion of, of people voting uh, for something they believe in getting threats by their party, even, even if it's, and I think the point is, you know, maybe it, it is an extreme voice, but the rest of the party is not condemning it. And that, I think, is tragic. And, and it leads right into this next piece. I think we can squeeze in before we go to break. Republican John Gibbs, a software engineer who served as a housing official in the Trump administration, announced this week he is running for the U.S. House in the West Michigan district held by freshman U.S. Representative Peter Meyer. Gibbs, a Michigan native from Lansing, was nominated last year by former President Donald Trump to serve as director of the Office of Personnel Management, but the Senate never confirmed him to the post. Does he present a real challenge for Meyer? Meyer's another one of those people, Paul, that you just referred to. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Meyer, Meyer voted, for, I think he voted for the impeachment, if I'm not mistaken, if I recall correctly. Yeah, this is going to yeah. be a Republican. He's kind of one of the Republicans on the outs. This is going to yeah. be a primary challenge for him. Yeah. And yeah, first, it, and well, he's a, a first term, and that's usually the most most vulnerable time, is that first yeah. re-election campaign. Sure. Yeah, if, if, if there's no candidate wins, that will indicate that Trump is back. Yeah. 
my only thought is I think given Myers District, a fairly well-known name because of his, the family owns a major yeah. chain of department stores and uh, grocery stores around the state and beyond. It's like the Michigan I, I, version of Walmart. That's about, yeah, that's about, that's about <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> Myers stores are all over the place. I suspect he's safe, but as I say, I... You never know. Those primaries can be quirky events with the low turnout, uh, especially. And uh, as if, if you the know, as, an ant, as a Trump guy, he could beat him. As you know, Kent County and Oakland County are the most Republican districts in the state. Well, and and there's yeah. there's been some evidence that both of them are changing a little. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, in, in Kent County, Grand Rapids City, we went Democratic for the first time in I don't know how long. Uh, Things are changing. Yeah. Must be gerrymandering. Uh-huh. <laughs> or the fight against it, but the the problem is is that the the new districts that are being drawn, at least the ones in Michigan, are, are showing flaws that are having some similar outcomes as to the lines that have been drawn in the past. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I've looked at some of those maps already, and it's, again, they'll be more competitive, but I'm not sure how much more competitive when you get down to, down to it. You know, uh, Tom, I, I want to ask you, um, if, if gerrymandering is so is effective. What does that say about driving good public policy? You know, there's a thing that's called good public policy that meets that meshes well with people's expectation of government. How do you rationalize the tool? Well, there there are there there are two things that that need to happen. One is that the districts need to be drawn just as geographically as possible without taking into account um, party, race, you know, all of these these other factors. Sure. It should have the right number of people being represented and, and, and pay no attention. You know, it, it starts out with, you know, basically a grid map, and then somebody says, well, wait a minute, we've... Uh, disenfranchised black voters. Uh, black voters don't have a block where they can have representation on these um, various boards and, and committees and in Congress and so on because they don't have a majority in any of these districts. So we make some adjustments there. And then somebody says, well, yeah, but the needs of people on this side of town are different than this side of town. So they make an adjustment there. Pretty soon, you've got something shaped like a gerrymander. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that's... But it, it, yes, that's right. And, and you know, I love that point because one of the, the things that I discussed in some length is that this, it loses, it, it creates a lack of confidence in the system. The proposal that I put in the third part of, of American Schism is that we have software now that easily can draw concentric circles around county seats. 
Yeah, we've raised that issue before, Seth. Um, Seth, I have to jump in here because we have to take a short break. But I want to pick it up here and finish answering uh, Henry's question because there's a second component to gerrymandering that I think is is really important. But we're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partner squeeze in a few words. We'll be right back. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, 
Dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue with Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, featuring our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by author Seth Radwell. And uh, welcome back, everybody. Just when we went to break, uh, Henry had just asked me about gerrymandering, and we, we started talking about gerrymandering. And I want to pick up that conversation um, because there was a part two for me anyway in answering Henry's question about, you know, how, how does the, how do these structures impact the getting, yeah, getting to good public policy. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it becomes more about the horse race, you know, more about uh, form than substance. Um, yeah. The other part of this, the, the part two, yeah, uh, redistricting and, and how we draw the maps is, is really important to, um, to being nonpartisan. But there's also this other element where people don't trust that their vote matters or counts and they don't participate and there's a huge amount of money that goes into swaying the people who do and if we could if we could look a little bit at finance reform with regard to elections and and also um, we've got redistricting finance reform and then some way of of reestablishing trust with voters if if even 75 percent of of eligible voters voted they could stand up against you know big money in in uh, the big lobbying firms and so on and maybe the the people that they voted for or against would get the message yeah, you know, you make a good point that when we have all these one-party districts uh, for Congress and for other things, too, it does discourage voting. And if you think about it, if let's take, for example, here in the, the 5th District, which is very Democratic for Dan Kildee, clearly, on one hand, if you're a Democrat, it's easy to say, well, gee, I don't need to vote. My guy's going to win anyhow. And on the other hand, if you're a Republican in the same district, you're going to say, why should I vote? My guy's going to lose. And that's true for so many districts around the country that the they, they are so clearly one party that almost ahead of time you know what's going to happen. And uh, that, that does discourage voting uh, on the part of an awful lot of people. You know, uh, a good idea. That's a great point. And, you know, uh, Democrats not only pursue uh, the vote of the uh, people of color, not only African-Americans, but African-Americans particularly, because they've always been a solid base for Democrat voters. But now the Republicans are in hot pursuit of the black vote. And this is the best time that change can can happen. 
for the best for the country and for people of color. They've got to be able to exercise uh, their votes and governance in the same way that traditional white voters do, and then they're on the same page. And out of that outcome becomes something that all Americans can live with. It doesn't have to be ideal. We don't have to lock shoulders and lock hands or high-five each other, but it will work. And uh, you're seeing a lot of this transformation ongoing all the time, uh, and that's going to be good for the country. Well, one thing that I that I found particularly interesting about uh, Seth's book, American Schism, is that he points to this this division that we have now, and traces it back, you know, a, a couple centuries. You know that it it didn't just it didn't just start, but somehow through all of that people were able to work together and and we've got to figure out what's preventing people from working together and accomplishing some of the the great things that we once did you know you say sometimes the the game playing becomes more important than the actual governance we're, well, you, know, Paul, you and I are, you know, we're we're those those, uh, you know, politics geeks that you know set out the the comfort food, the popcorn, and you know right. snacks, <laughs> and you know sit down to watch a state of the union or a political convention. You know, we we pay a lot more attention than most people do, but we we've, we've got to get that interest back, and it, it and it That's shouldn't true. just be in the horse race. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm talking about. It shouldn't be in a horse race. You're dealing with people, people who have aspirations, people who love this country, people who give right. respect to our institutions and our government, people who follow the democratic principles. And yet... Uh, but I'm afraid we, that that respect, Henry, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm always so honored to, to have you be a part of this show because of you know the the way that you conduct yourself and but that that respect that you refer to all the time has been really stripped away by lack of trust yes and we got to figure yes. out how to get that how to how to earn that back tom you're let, so, let, let, let me make an analogy from from history because i think it's it's directly speaking to what you guys are are mentioning and I discuss it as well. It, you know, after as things got increasingly bitter between the Hamilton's Federalists and Jeff the Jeffersonian Republicans uh, at the end of the the, the 18th century, uh, it became more and more divisive, and and in some ways became less about working together and more about ad hominem attacks. And it was that trend that led Washington in his farewell address to warn about the dangers of political parties. So in a way, this has happened at times, many times in our, in our history, and we've had warnings against it. And so I don't think it's, it's unique in the sense that where the, the game becomes more important and the personalities become more important than the, the substance of the issues. But usually, you know, certainly we've had things like uh, um, breakdowns before. But usually there are corrections, and I think Washington's message at his uh, farewell 
is very uh, would be very well heated today. You know, I think that's one reason why we've we've at least in many local areas have made school boards and city councils and a few other local bodies nonpartisan in the hope that there wouldn't be those kind of party conflicts. You know, the assumption has always been there's there's no Democratic or Republican way to pave a road or to to uh, uh, run a police department or take care of a sewer system. Uh, so technically, at least in many areas, city councils and school boards and so forth are at least nominally nonpartisan. Not always that in practice, but at least nominally nonpartisan. Right. You know, and it begs the question as to whether the republic should continue, because it can't. Well, it and there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people writing today. A lot of books, and I've had some of the authors on the show that are basically um, predicting that that we're actually experiencing the fall of. Um, liberal democracy yeah no i've, I've uh yeah here's here's, here's, here's an example along those same lines here's an example from the headlines that fits into what we're talking about house democrats introduced a resolution friday to censure arizona republican representative paul gozer for posting a photoshopped oh, anime oh, video to his twitter and instagram accounts showing him appearing to kill democratic representative alexandria casio cortez and attacking president joe biden House Democrats said Wednesday that, quote, violence against women in politics is a global phenomenon meant to silence women and discourage them from seeking positions of authority and participating in public life with women of color disproportionately impacted. They also said mm -hmm. that vicious and vulgar messaging can and does foment actual violence pointing to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th as an example. It is unclear if or when the House will vote on the resolution condemning Gozer's actions. Do censures carry any weight with constituents back home anymore? And did they ever? Well, if you get this answer of your, your public that you represent and the people back home know that. So they began putting together a new team to challenge the incumbent. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the way to change things. I, I think Gosa uh, made a mistake. That was, you, you can't do that. I was going to say, though, in our partisan atmosphere, being censured by the other party may almost be a plus for your campaign. See, I, those folks over there hate me, so you better reelect me, because I'll, I'll stand up to those, got those the enemy on the other side of the fence. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah, it doesn't have, it probably doesn't help your reputation, but I have a hunch no. I can see that being used as a almost as a plus in some campaigns to prove that mm -hmm. how strong you are against the other side. But I see it as a negative. Oh, uh, absolutely, you're right. You have It it should uh, be, but I think Paul's right. I can I can see um, Gozer campaigning in his dis in his district saying, you know, the bad guys censured me. Right. And right. making it, you know, almost like a campaign battle cry. Yeah, look at that. That didn't happen in New York, guys. That didn't happen in New York or Pennsylvania. That did not happen. Uh, the the, the well, governor well, made a mistake. 
What, what about Liz Cheney being being kicked out of apparently the, the Wyoming Republican Party? I saw that story yeah, this past week. Yeah, that yeah, was, they, uh, they were kicked out. Yeah, they yeah they're starting to say, uh, and, and I can't remember the wording, Paul, but it was something to the effect of they refused to call her a Republican anymore. Right. Yeah. But they didn't do that to Romney, did they? Oh, not in Utah, no. Romney is still bona fide Republican. So I, I don't know what the difference is between what uh, Cheney presented and Romney did. They were both uh, opposed um, to the ideas that they represented. I mean, others represented. Romney said that, you know, was opposed to Joe Biden. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think Romney's roots in Utah with maybe the, the Mormon connection may help there. I, I don't know what the internal logistics are of the, the Utah Republican Party, but I suspect they're But don't be, be surprised. Don't yeah. be surprised if Liz Cheney does could not happen. Yeah, get, right. get uh, referenced as a potential candidate for president of the United States. I've heard that mentioned. both sides. I've she's heard that mentioned, yeah. 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 Oh, that... Uh, Liz Cheney would uh, run for president? Yes. I think she'd make She's a strong candidate. She's got support from both sides now, guys. That's true. Yeah. A federal grand jury has returned an indictment against former Donald Trump advisor Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress, the Justice Department announced Friday. Attorney General Merrick Garland had been under tremendous political pressure to indict Bannon since the House referred the Trump ally to the Justice Department for contempt on October 21st. Bannon, 67, was charged with one count related to his refusal to appear for a deposition and another related to his refusal to produce documents. Each count carries a minimum of 30 days and a maximum of one year in jail, the Justice Department said. Does pressing for prosecution in this case set an example to other subpoena targets, or, as we've been talking about, fuel momentum for resisting congressional authority? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. That's sitting right <laughs> in the middle of the fulcrum. <laughs> yeah, probably a bit of both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Bannon scares my, my, me. Go ahead. My view is that it's very important because Bannon is making a circus of our political uh, uh, um, landscape, and it's not. It's not. It's it, there is a rule of law here, and it's it's it comes down to also principle. Uh, so I'm I'm hopeful that the, the kind of circus that he's creating is rejected by serious uh, citizens on both sides. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. Um, I I was amused. Uh, a little bit, although I was kind of annoyed with uh, with Bannon's smirk, but he literally yeah. came out of um, his his first appearance on the charges uh, on the indictment and was doing a, vi a victory lap. Yeah, he was yeah. bragging about the fact that he was being convicted. Yeah, or yeah. indicted. And, and that's what bothers me about Bannon. He is so self assured. But and with his uh, scruffy beard and stuff like that. <laughs> he, 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 uh, I was going to say, Henry, he, remind, go, 
He reminds me of a guy who got kicked out of a homeless shelter because he was too disruptive. Well, you know, I was I was watching Saturday Night Live over the weekend, and they did um, they did something. I can't remember if it was the cold opening. I think it might no. It was during the uh, weekend update. They did a piece on Steve Bannon's indictment. And I was almost certain that instead of putting up a picture of Steve Bannon, they were going to use that uh, that arrest, that drunk driving arrest photo of, um, uh, oh shoot, what's what's his name? Oh, I know who you mean. Yeah, um, uh, uh, the actor. Yeah, Nick. Um, Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. I know I know what picture you're talking about. <laughs> I thought for sure they were going to put that picture up and say, Steve Bannon was in court today. Yeah. And then when they put oh. the picture up of Steve Bannon, I thought, what's the point? You can hardly tell them apart. That's right. <laughs> That's very funny. Well, the White House on Monday defended Vice President Kamala Harris as a key partner to President Joe Biden, following CNN reporting that Key West Wing aides are exasperated by what they see as entrenched dysfunction and lack of focus from Harris and her staff, while many in the vice president's circle believe Harris is being sidelined. Quote, the president selected the vice president because uh, to serve as his running mate because he felt she was exactly the person he wanted to have by his side to govern the country, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters at a White House briefing. Psaki continued she is a key partner, she's a bold leader, and she is somebody who has taken on incredibly important assignments, whether it's addressing the root causes of migration at the Northern Triangle or taking on a core cause of democracy and voting rights. There's been a lot of reports out there, and they don't reflect his view or our experience with the vice president, Saki said. Does White House support of the vice president seem less than wholehearted? Hmm. Well, to tell you the truth, I don't, I can't measure that, because I don't see them do enough together. I don't see them travel together. I just don't see them oh, respond to questions or uh, 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 respond on issues of common cause and stuff like that. I, I just don't, there's not enough to tell us yeah. that they, uh, what kind of uh, behavior is going on between those two. And I'm thinking there's always often a gap or even some friction between the president and vice president. I mean, the vice president's role is defined by the president, and it's usually it's somebody of ambition, but you very often there's not much to do in the job. I'm thinking of JFK and LBJ especially, but even a lot of other vice presidents where, as I say, they were never they were not always on the same page. I mean, Nixon and Eisenhower were, this, were similar kind of a gap for a long time. And... Right. Uh, even to some degree, Reagan and, and George Bush. So, yeah, I mean, I, there's then, always been that friction there, I think. But Bush, too, and Cheney got along fairly decent. That's true. That's true. Although Cheney, although Bush, too, was it was, was often frustrated because people claimed Cheney was running the show. Well, <laughs> 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 oh, no, that was his daughter, Liz, was running the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Clinton and Gore probably got along better than most presidents and vice presidents. Yes, they did. They back got along over, but, but but again, frequently there's a lot of there's a gap or some friction there. So I'm not. Well, not and I think Obama and Biden 
had that's a good true, yeah. working relationship. That's, and that's, that's right. That's, that's why right. a lot of people were expecting to see something similar with Biden and Harris. Yeah. So, right. I think it's largely a non-story. I mean, I think the real underlying question that's being asked is, what? who is the Democrats' candidate in 2024? I, mean, <laughs> I think you're right. Really, what they're really, they're really talking about is, is she going to be the candidate, or is you know what's the chances of him trying to run again? Which I think you know people have different opinions about. Or is there some other uh, head of the party that's going to that's going to emerge? So that's really the underlying question that I think is being raised. Yeah. Well, one la- last thing before we go to break, and then we're going to move on to the uh, the actual X Files. Former President Donald Trump's attempt to withhold records from the House of Representatives related to the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack based on executive privilege, a claim rejected by uh, President Joe Biden, would present the U.S. Supreme Court with a novel legal dilemma. But past decisions involving assertions of executive privilege to keep documents confidential suggest Trump has a weak case even if heard by this increasingly conservative high court with three Trump appointees on the nine-member bench. The privilege is not for the benefit of the president as an individual, but for the benefit of the republic, the Supreme Court declared in a 1977 touchstone decision involving former President Richard Nixon. More recently, the justices last year expressed concerns that congressional demands for presidential documents could arise from impermissible purposes, such as to harass a president and interfere with his official duties. In this new case, however, any possible distraction from duties dissolves because Trump no longer holds the office. Do you think SCOTUS Watergate rulings during the Nixon administration would become did you think they would become legal precedents for future events like what we're seeing now? Hmm. You would think so. Yeah, I, 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 I would, would think I, so. I kind of agree with Henry there. I think it's if I was again no certain no certainties here, but I, I would think so. It's going to be it's really hard. It seems to me to give that 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 uh, executive privilege to somebody no longer in office. Yeah. Probably, but who knows? Well, as always, I, I can't believe how fast the time is going. Um, we have a break coming up in about two minutes, and then we're going to do the X Files. But with uh, you know, with um, Eric Mays, president of the city council, and Attorney General uh, Dana Nessel wasted at a Michigan Michigan <laughs> State game, and uh, members of Congress uh, posting. Uh, animated depictions of them murdering other members of Congress. It's hard to tell the difference <laughs> between, the, between the uh, mainstream headlines yeah. and, and the things I go digging for to include in the X-Files. It just seems like it gets weirder all the time. Uh-huh. Strange time we live in, no matter how you cut it. You know, um, Speaking of mistrust by uh, people of color of the government, uh, there's a lot of mistrust out there, and I've never seen a black American so uh, adamant about the mistrust in government, and that needs to change. And I think elements are changing things. If uh, we could get some positive thoughts, discussion about 
uh, and there were many people, right after the Civil War, people didn't think in this country that African Americans were capable of self-governing, of taking care of themselves in this country. And many of them were black Americans who thought the same thing. But then, uh, think, and for years, that has been a prevailing doctrine as we uh, have functioned in the United States. And, but it's changing, and, but there's still the mistrust of governments. Well, we've got to take a break there, Henry, and we'll, uh, we'll be back with uh, my favorite segment of the show when we wrap up with the uh, X-Files on today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The Unknown Comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. 
As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. Now we uh, move on to our final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program, The Coveted X-Files. And I know sometimes it's hard to tell them from the rest of the program, but uh, um, here's one uh, sort of kicking the holiday season off a little early. Santa may have fewer eyes in homes this Christmas season after a Georgia judge, jokingly, banned the elf on the shelf. <laughs> Cobb County Superior Court Chief Judge Robert Leonard posted a mock order on Twitter Thursday banning these elves. It said, uh, tired of living in elf-on-the-shelf tyranny, not looking forward to the elf forgetting to move and causing your kids emotional distress, I am a public service and will take the heat for you. My gift to tired parents, Leonard tweeted, according to the holiday tradition, the uh, elves hide in homes for weeks before Christmas and report back to Santa on who's been naughty and nice. The elf dolls are supposed to move to a different location each night. Inexplicably, elves sometimes move and don't move overnight. When those elves do not move, it leaves our children of tender years in states of extreme emotional distress, Leonard wrote in his order. He recalled a horrific incident in his own home when three children were sent to school in tears with one child being labeled an elf murderer and accused of making the elf <laughs> lose his magic. Given the risks of such emotional damage and supply chain issues caused by this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the judge wrote that he had no choice but to banish the elves from Cobb County. He did make an allowance for parents who don't feel overwhelmed by the elf on the shelf tyranny, writing in his tweet, If you love your elf, keep your elf. No contempts. Uh, the question is, 
should the elf be shelved? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I think it's a matter of taste. It's what you believe, what you value. Uh, how people yeah. love to stimulate the imagination in children whether they're at the, That's the true. strongest point in their life to learn and to grow and to breathe and to develop. You know, right. you know those are all parts of life. Well, it just struck me as kind of funny that even the elf on the shelf is not immune to the cancel culture we live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is, there, is there nothing sacred? <laughs> exactly. Well, a little girl who lost a special teddy bear she'd had since being adopted from an Ethiopian orphanage thought it was gone forever when she forgot it along a trail in Glacier National Park last year. Her parents and family friends still held on to a glimmer of hope, and hope won out. Thanks to a social media plea, the sharp eyes and soft heart of a park ranger, and the closure of a hiking trail because of grizzly bear activity, on the same day a family friend visited the park, the teddy bear is back in the arms of six-year-old Naomi Pascal in Jackson, Wyoming. The bear's return, which has earned 12,000 likes on the Glacier National Park Facebook page, is a beautiful story that resonates, said Ben Pascal, Naomi's dad and the senior pastor at the Presbyterian Church of Jackson Hole, a popular ski town south of Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Would you call this a Berry Christmas Miracle? I think so. <laughs> I would. <laughs> what a great story. It is a great story. And here's, yeah. and here's one, uh, finally. A couple of weeks ago, amid mounting online fury over Disney's transportation issues, the company announced it was finally reopening its famous monorail system. But, the company said, its trams to and from parking lots will remain idle for the foreseeable future. Hmm. What's hmm. happening in the Magic Kingdom is happening across the entire uh, economy. Domino's is taking longer to deliver pizzas. Airlines are putting customers who call them on hold for hours. Restaurants, bars, and hotels are understaffed and stretched thin. The quality of service seems to be deteriorating everywhere. We've all heard about rising inflation. The price of stuff is going up. And if you read the Planet Money newsletter, you've heard of shrinkflation. That's when the price of stuff stays the same, but the amount you get goes down. The economy-wide decline in service quality that we're now seeing is something different, and it doesn't have a good name. It's a situation where we're paying the same or more for services, but they kind of suck compared to with what they used to be. We propose a new word to describe this stealth ninja kind of inflation, skimpflation. It's when instead of simply raising prices, companies skimp on the goods and services they provide. Is skimpflation a good companion term to shrinkflation? Um, or do you think the uh, post-pandemic new normal is going to usher in more shrimpflation? <laughs> we may see that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, uh, that will hurt the people in this country. And it will drive up prices and it will affect the long range uh, uh, money that's uh, available to for public health and for uh, uh, 
quality of life improvement and stuff like that. Uh, we need to think ourselves through this to, to know what is the best step so that all Americans could benefit. That Congress needs to think about this. Well, I just I, I, I couldn't pass that one up because I have noticed this trend of, you know, providing less for the same or right. more. Yeah, the, the the box of the of the boxes of cereal or, or macaroni or whatever stays the same, but the amount inside seems to get a little smaller as time goes by. I think yeah, most people have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think potato chips invented that, didn't they? Uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But that was right. good because we watch our weight that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's more air uh-huh. in the bag than chips. Well, that wraps it up for uh, armchair politics and, uh, well, the X-Files and armchair politics. But we have a couple of minutes left if anybody has any final thoughts. Uh, um, well, I'm just curious to see what's happened with the Flint City Council. As I say, I, uh, I uh, was uh, somewhat surprised by the tenor of the meeting on Monday. And whether it's going to last remains to be seen, but who knows. But it will be interesting to watch. Yeah, and, and I want to toot for the city council, too, because, uh, as I said, many people didn't think that people of color could govern and uh, stuff like that, and the city council is a good example of keeping that kind of philosophy alive among our critics and stuff like that. I want them to see them change. I want to also see the school district change. True. So well, one other, th- one and, other thing that I think is going to be interesting to note is if the fact that for the first time in the history of Flint, um, the majority of council people are women. Six That's out, right. of, six out of nine. That might be good. I, I, I wonder if that won't uh, yeah, play may, a role well in be. tamping tensions down a bit. Um, Seth, any final thoughts? Well, I, I think we are in a really interesting time as we approach the end of the year, and you know, one of the things that I'm I'm talking a lot about are what the top stories are of the year, and I, I certainly think they're what we we imagine COVID and and what's, hap- what's happening in terms of the January 6th investigation. But I also think a lot of it, it comes down to whether we believe we can govern as a democracy. And the whole trend <laughs> in the world is moving towards what, what is sometimes called illiberal democracy or autocracy. And that's something that I think we all should be concerned about as Americans. Yes. Yes. Well, well said. on that note, I, I want to say thank you to... Um, my guest uh, earlier this morning um, that opened up the show. I uh, was supposed to be talking to the the former finance minister of uh, El Salvador, but we weren't able to connect. We're rescheduling uh, kind of as I speak. But David Bonson, uh, author of a book, um, oh, shoot, where is it? There's my notes. There's No Free Lunch was the name of the book. Anyway, I want to thank uh, David for uh, being part of the show this morning. And I also, of course, want to thank our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. Thanks, guys. Always good to be here. And Sean David Sethwell, author of... uh, (laughs) Boy, did I butcher your name. Seth David Radwell, author of American Schism. It's great to have you back again this week. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. All happy right. Thanksgiving, uh, Mr. Boswell. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. 
And that's uh, Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But uh, I'll be back tomorrow morning with another edition of the Tom Sumner program, and I hope you will be too. Thanks again to the uh, members of the roundtable and uh, all of the guests that I have on the show and to all of you who tune in every Wednesday for Armchair Politics. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.